is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping, in this week for Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Dodger fans today mourning the loss of legend and icon Vin Scully, who died at the age of 94. Some considered Scully maybe one of the greatest sports broadcasters of all time. He was on the call for so many memorable moments in Dodgers history, including the greatest home run ever hit at Dodger Stadium. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! We go in-depth into the legacy of Vin Scully. We also get into a major win for abortion rights supporters in a very red and very conservative state. Warner Brothers spent tens of millions of dollars making a major movie the public will apparently never see. We go in-depth into why. In Southern California, lagging behind our rivals up north when it comes to water conservation and seaweed is causing big, big problems in the Caribbean. Plus, Charles, do you feel like you need to hold on to something? The earth is spinning faster. I feel that all the time. Yeah. So this is something new. Or our heads spinning faster, one of the two. But the earth is spinning faster. That's that's a fact. And we will explain more into that. I'm curious from your point of view, uh, Brian, you know, I said at the very top that some people, many people, consider Vince Scully to have been maybe one of the greatest, maybe the greatest uh, uh, sports broadcaster. Why do you think, in your view, that's the case? Because he connected with people in uh, a rare manner that, you know, there are many talented sports broadcasters out there who can call a game, but it's another talent entirely to be able to just connect with somebody and with baseball in particular. uh, When you're listening to that person every single night, they become like family and at that point, it's where uh, when you make that connection and that person's in your living room, there's that intimate bond. Everyone has it with their own local markets, and especially Southern California with Vin Scully, because the team developed in L.A. with him there. He was there from day one, and he helped teach a lot of Southern Californians about the game itself. And it only grew from there, and well, but he had you know, the talent but, on top of that. Yeah, but, you know, it's interesting, too, is it, it it's sort of a... a a bi-coastal fandom sure. that he had because, of course, when he started with the Dodgers, it was still in Brooklyn. That's right. In Brooklyn, New mm-hmm. York. Uh, so, you know, it's unusual for somebody to have, usually in sports, right, they have a kind of fan base in the town that they're mm-hmm. connected with, in this case, L.A., but because the Dodgers themselves traveled from New York to California, mm-hmm. uh, he with them. Uh, he has that kind of unusual legacy by, that's bi-coastal, truly. Yes, that's true. And also, he called national games, so uh, an audience all over uh, the United States got to hear him both for the Game of the Week and for the World Series. You know, I grew up in the Midwest, nowhere near any place where uh, Vin Scully had called games locally, but I was still you know, very familiar with his voice from highlights, and we played the Kirk Gibson highlights, uh, just, just renowned for any baseball fan. So... Even though if he didn't live in his market, you didn't hear him every day, he he had a way of you know telling a story, connecting the present day with the past, letting you know just what a rich history baseball has unique to other sports and all of its you know funny little quirks in addition to its great moments. Uh, so you didn't have to be a Dodger fan or grow up in Southern California or in New York City uh, to have had Vin Scully make an impact on you if you're a baseball fan. And, and actually, let, let's give a little taste of that, because uh, mm-hmm. as I said, we were waiting uh, for uh, Oral Hershiser to uh, join us. Uh, but uh, before he does, if he does, uh, here's uh, this was uh, Vin Scully. It's uh, his call uh, on uh, of the mound in Oakland with the strikeout that closed out. 
1988 World Series. Got him. They've done it. Like the 1969 Mets, it's the impossible dream revisited. Yeah, the 1988 Dodgers that won the World Series, they, yeah. they were not a world-beating team. I mean, they, they, were, they were a good team, uh, but it was a big surprise that they won that World Series because the, the clip that he had of Kirk Gibson after he hit that home run that will live forever saying yeah. a season uh, full of the improbable, meaning the season that had happened before, the impossible has happened, which was the home run when Kirk Gibson was you know, badly hobbled by an injury and, and pinch hit. It was just that's what made it such a great moment. Uh, and that the Dodger fans just rode that uh, roller coaster all the way. And Vin Scully was there for it. He was there for the call uh, for the World Series. It's just one of the many moments that they they, they can cherish. Did, did you ever want to be a sportscaster professionally? I did. Yeah. Uh, my life path took me towards news. I was fortunate to do sportscasting on you know a high school level. Right. Uh, but it's a it's an exciting thing, and to be able because you're you're constantly having to be on top of what is happening now but you also have to come in with a lot of preparation and if with baseball in particular there's a lot of dead space to fill and so you got to be prepared with yeah you know, more, more anecdotes stories then was a master of that it could have been uh you know something that was germane to the game itself or something something, something just uh, completely uh yeah out of nowhere concerning a particular player he had all these interesting facts about uh almost every single you know, player on the field and talked about their backgrounds Right now, though, voters in Kansas have just rejected a ballot measure that would have basically let state lawmakers outlaw abortion. Kansas is known for being a you know, pretty conservative and deep red state, but voters overwhelmingly supported the pro-choice side yesterday. Rachel Sweet is the campaign manager for Kansans for Constitutional Freedom, which supports a woman's right to choose. Rachel, thanks for being with us. Uh, I remember we did uh, this story on the show, I guess, about a week or two ago. And at the time, it was kind of close. At least the polling indicated it was kind of close. Are you surprised that the uh, vote was apparently overwhelmingly uh, against uh, allowing the legislature there to ban abortion? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, that is correct. Um, I think we were all surprised by last night's election results. We knew that even in a state like Kansas, we had a really good shot of coming out victorious last night and defeating this extreme constitutional amendment. But I don't think any of us here on the ground in in the state of Kansas anticipated a 59% no vote on this constitutional question. Is this a matter you feel where the people who wanted to protect abortion rights were much more motivated, you know, given the shock of what's happened over these uh, last couple of months to get out to the polls? And there may have been some complacency on the other side. You know, I wouldn't necessarily say that there was complacency on the side of the proponents of this constitutional amendment. Um, we saw in all of our research and just, you know, on the ground as we've been talking to voters across the state, we saw a lot of advocacy and a lot of campaign spending on both sides of this issue. What I really think happened here is that, yes, voters who support access to reproductive health services and access to abortion were very motivated, but also we were able to really talk to uh, voters all across the political spectrum. 
you can't win an election in Kansas with 59% of the vote, only with um, Democrats. It's just the math doesn't work out. So we were able to really talk to, you know, Republicans, independent voters, libertarian voters, and Democrats to put together a coalition of Kansans who were willing to say, this change to our state constitution is too extreme. It would have allowed for a total ban on abortion with no exceptions. And we were able to really show the voters that, hey, even, you know, you Kansas voters, some of whom may self-identify as being pro-life or not typically supportive of abortion rights, this is a change that you would be very uncomfortable with and is out of step with Kansas values. So I think we saw a lot of motivation. Uh, we had over, you know, a 47% turnout and there are still some vote by mail ballots that are yet to be counted. So for a primary election, this is tremendous turnout, which to me says that both sides were motivated. Right. Um, but we were let, really able to make the case to voters. Let me ask you, though, from a practical point of view, uh, how easy is it for a woman in Kansas to get an abortion? Well, abortion is highly regulated in Kansas. Uh, there are four healthcare facilities that provide abortion services, all located in either the Kansas City metro area or in Wichita. So if you are someone who needs an abortion, who lives in rural Kansas, who lives in the western part of the state, abortion care is still really hard to access. What we were trying to do with this effort is really protect the status quo and make sure that abortion remained legal. Um, but for many in Kansas, it is still very challenging to access those services. And Kansas is an overwhelmingly you know, rural state, but not entirely, because you mentioned that it does have half of the Kansas City metro area, a couple other you know, larger markets there that where you can pull some Democratic voters. Have you been able to see a geographic breakdown of this vote? And did those uh, blue or maybe purple uh, regions, did they uh, you know, help carry over the finish line here? That's a great question. So, yeah, we're still analyzing all of the results. But what I think is really interesting about this election in particular is we did not just win in the counties that are more urban and suburban. Um, we won over 19 counties um, in the state so far, and a lot of those are in rural areas, um, rural areas in south uh, in southern Kansas, um, around, you know, the, the Topeka area, some of the rural counties around there. And, you know, typically in an election, if you just have, you know, a Democratic candidate and a Republican candidate, you see a map where there are, you know, just these few pockets, right, of, of blue. But here we were able to also communicate with a lot of those rural voters and create a, a coalition that just, I think, looks very different than any yeah. candidate we've seen running Kansas. I, I presume that the other side is not going to give up. What is their next step? You know, they have suggested that they are going to continue to push this measure. In Kansas, uh, constitutional changes like this have to be referred by our state legislature. Um, so, you know, I guess we need to see what state legislature looks like after the, you know, uh, November elections are over. Um, but they have said that, you know, they are committed to continuing to push this constitutional amendment through however they can. And, uh, you know, I think we'll be ready for them and 59% of the voters in Kansas, uh, I think, is a pretty decisive statement on how that might fare in the future. That's Rachel Sweet, the campaign manager for pro-choice organization, Kansans for Constitutional Freedom. Rachel, thank you. And a little bit later on, Southern California lagging behind Northern California when it comes to saving water. We look into why. And the days, they are getting faster. And it is because the earth 
is spinning faster. Right now, more primary elections were held in several states, Arizona, Michigan, Missouri, to name a few. Once again, the influence of former President Trump was put to the test on the Republican side of the ballot. And Ted Johnson is political editor for Deadline. So, Ted, of course, really the main storyline for primary season thus far has been watching those GOP primaries and do the Trump candidates you know, come out on top or not. And it's been a mixed bag. So uh, did that carry on tonight? Did we see more mixed results or uh, one way or the other? I actually thought it was a pretty good night for Donald Trump, uh, especially in Arizona. Arizona, you had a number of uh, election deniers who won uh, the primary, Blake Masters in the Senate race. Uh, there was also a Secretary of State race. A Trump-endorsed candidate uh, won that. And uh, Carrie Lake, uh, another endorsed candidate, she's leading in the race for governor. Uh, Arizona, important, obviously, because that was – one of the ground zeros, I guess, of, uh, of the uh, presidential election where a lot of Trump's claims of vote rigging and that sort of thing uh, took place. So uh, so that uh, played into account when Trump was deciding who to endorse. So, of course, uh, the type of voter that votes in primaries, they do tend to be more on the ideological extreme, whether it's left or, or right. So how much can we, should we, read into the results of this? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to remember is just because they won the primary does not necessarily uh, mean that they're going to go on to a general election. In fact, Democrats have been out there boosting some of these Trump-endorsed candidates on the theory that it will improve their chances in winning some of these seats. That was the case in Michigan, where one of the Republican incumbents, Peter Major, who voted for impeachment, voted to impeach uh, Donald Trump, he actually lost his seat to a Trump-endorsed candidate uh, and major complaint because Democrats spent about 400000 in the race to try to boost the fortunes of his rival. I, I found that fascinating, this uh, this whole development. I remember a race in Illinois, which is like a race of the billionaires. You had three candidates all backed by billionaires. I think one was a billionaire uh, himself. And then in one of the cases, the Democrats backed the uh, so-called MAGA candidate in hopes that it would backfire on the Republican Party. Do you think that's sound strategy? Well, well, there's been what I think is a little bit of pearl clutching uh, over, you know, uh, how can Democrats do this when they're they're saying, you know, we we are we are the ones for election integrity. We are the ones for democracy. And here you are spending money on candidates uh, that are the polar opposite of what you believe in. Uh, but uh, Democrats are also political tacticians and political strategists. And uh, surprise, uh, they can play hardball when it comes to some of these uh, some of these primary races. It's not the first time that it's happened. Uh, the risk, obviously, is that something could happen in some of these races where a candidate, some fault comes out, a Democratic candidate, and the race starts to uh, to lean toward the mega Republican. Uh, that uh, is something that absolutely could backfire. You know, I had somebody ask me earlier today, they said, uh, how could people, knowing what they know now from the congressional hearings, from, uh, you know, news reports, how could people buy into candidates that, that are helping to uh, keep you know, uh, uh, fostering this notion of, of an election win by Donald Trump and the big lie. Uh, what do you tell somebody like that? I don't know how to answer them. 
Well, it's uh, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, uh, at a certain point, you can just throw up your hands because uh, facts are facts. Uh, but you have to also remember a lot of these people are getting their news from a different news source than you may that you may not be watching. It can come from conservative media, media on the right, or probably most importantly from social media. Um, we've kind of entered that age where people are really a lot of people are in their own bubbles, and those people who aren't paying so much attention to politics um, uh, may not be as informed uh, until you know weeks or even days before an election. So it is a uh, it is a big problem uh, that uh, the country is kind of heading toward this this place where we don't have the same shared set of facts. We're short on time, but I got to ask you about this. Of course, the, the the Trump endorsement of the Missouri Senate race for Eric. He didn't specify whom. There are three Eric's that were running in that race. Eric Schmidt went on to win, and I think from what sources say, the the president you know, reveled in all this. He loved the fact that they all <laughs> it was ridiculous. But uh, this just kind of goes to show that uh, the president may just be kind of uh, trolling everybody because everyone wants to know what he thinks. Yeah, there's a big backstory to that. There was a lot of lobbying for him not to endorse Eric Greitens, the former governor who has been involved in this um, sex scandal. He probably would have been the weakest of all those candidates in that race. So probably sighs of relief and people probably saying, you know what, uh, just let him declare victory. At least we got the candidate that we want. <laughs> Johnson, political editor for Deadline. Ted, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. Brian Pingan for Mike Simpson. Today, I'm Charles Felton. Imagine spending millions and millions of dollars filming a movie, then never releasing it for people to see. That's what happened with Warner Brothers and the new Batgirl movie. Yeah, the studio spent about $90 million <laughs> making it, but has now decided not to release it in theaters or even on streaming services. Why? Mark Malkin is senior editor at Variety, host of the Just Four Variety podcast. Hey, Mark. So why? I mean, good afternoon. Wow, ninety bucks. Uh, ninety bucks. Ninety million. I wish it were, <laughs> they wish it was ninety bucks, right? Ninety million dollars, and they're not going to let people see this. Why? They are not letting people see it at all. Not even on one of their streamers, because in the end, it all comes down to money. Yes, it costs ninety million dollars, but it's actually cheaper for them. It's less expensive to do a tax write-off on the entire project than try to release it. And then include marketing and publicity and everything else. But, that goes but along is, is, is it just that it's like a real stinker? That right now, the reports are saying that test audiences did not like the movie. But listen, we see some of the stuff that comes out of Hollywood. There is a way to make this movie good. I don't care how bad it is. You spent $90 million on the movie do some more CGI. Do some more editing. You can make this work. Well, it's good to be an obscenely wealthy studio like Warner Brothers. They they can do this. But, I mean, certainly that wasn't the plan going in to make this a, a tax write-off. Certainly they thought earnestly that this could be a hit. But, you know, I first of all, the August release date or if it was any if it was supposed to be any time around now was questionable because it's, uh, you know, where movies go to die, so to speak. And then also you got D.C. running a very distant second to Marvel uh, trying to play catch up. And they're just kind of behind the eight ball. Yeah, you know, they did have really high hopes for Batgirl. I've actually interviewed Leslie Grace, who plays Batgirl several times before she started shooting, after she started shooting. 
And she said she was so excited about this. They, she was already talking to the studio and the directors about what could we do in a sequel? Brendan Fraser was in this. Michael Keaton was set to make his return as Batman wow. in Batgirl. $90 million. Guys, go find some editors and cut this and make it good. Well, how much of this, uh, I suspect most of it is because of change of ownership, right, of the studio? That Listen, that's it. You know, there's all these mergers. All of that is happening in Hollywood right now. Warner Brothers is saying, you know what? We've gotten tight in our wallets. We've got to save money where we could save money. So... Batgirl, unfortunately, is a consequence of that, which is just, it's its so bizarre to can't, everyone. Can't they, can't they sell it to, like, one of the networks and make a continuing bad TV series? The networks are filled <laughs> with bad TV series. But here's the deal. Hollywood is full of bad movies, too. Yeah. <laughs> and I see most of them. They're awful. Listen, there, I, we can name many movies that probably cause just as much as Batgirl and even more that are horrible. It doesn't make sense. This is going to be Batgirl, a Latino woman playing Batgirl. This was groundbreaking. So everyone is just shocked. I'm waiting for the fandom that's probably started really is release Batgirl. It's going that is going to be a trending topic, I believe, on Twitter for a very long time to come. Yeah, to Charles's point, very important point about the uh, the merger, the buyout with uh, Discovery. And uh, you know, make no mistake, this is the same a company that shuttered CNN Plus after, what, a month? So it's kind of it's a trend here. Right. And this was a company before under, you know, previous management. They basically said, you know what, we're not going theatrical. We're going to release everything on the streamer. So it's really this new landscape that Hollywood is trying out where to make the big bucks, where to tighten the wallets, what should they be experimenting with? What experiments are not working? And like you just mentioned, CNN Plus did not work. But a lot of people also said they didn't give it a chance. You know, I, I kind of like your notion, Mark, of like this this sort of national or international campaign, like hashtag free Batgirl. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be free Batgirl, release Batgirl. Can we see it for free at this point? Here's the deal. You know, what what I'm interested to see, you know, is there someone, some renegade somewhere out there who has access to this movie? And are they going to try to leak stuff yeah. online? This, You know, this is this is the stuff by doing this. The interest is even that more. Now, you could be really cynical and say, you know what? This is a great promotional campaign. You know, and next week, Warner Brothers says, guess what? You know, Mark, really that girl. You know, I, I, I I'm usually the, <laughs> the cynical one. But but, you know, you may be onto something there that that because it, it's great PR. Look, we're talking about it. Right. And right. A lot could of you could you? Could you imagine if they announced tomorrow we're releasing it, even if you weren't planning on watching Batgirl, guess what you're going to be doing? Right. Watching Batgirl. <laughs> OK, well, maybe maybe that's the plan. All right. Mark Malton, uh, Mark Malkin, senior editor at Variety and the host of the Just for Variety podcast. Mark, thank you. So I know, Brian, do we smell a rat in Gotham City? Interesting strategy. You know, like if you take something and you make it unavailable, like yeah, the Choco it, Taco, everyone wants it wants now. It. Even though, when's the last time you had a Choco Taco? Oh, I Now can't everyone even wants remember. it. If yeah. you brought it back next week, everyone's going to get it. So maybe that's Same it. Thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe it is a stinker as a movie, and they figured, well, look, we've got to drum up some publicity, and this is going to do it. We'll, we'll, see what, we'll see what happens. But remember you know, what we were talking about with Mark, you know, like hashtag free Batgirl. Well, the rivalry between Northern and Southern California even extends to saving water, it seems. New conservation numbers out from the state, and they show people in the Bay Area cut their water use by the most in June, nearly 
13%. Now, people here in Southern California, including the South Coast Hydrologic Region, cut water use by nearly 6% compared with the same month in 2020. The governor's goal is to reduce water use by 15%. Brad Coffey is Water Resource Manager for the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. And so, Brad, uh, you know, what's going on here? Is it just a, a difference in messaging? Is it the fact that, I don't know, maybe it's warmer here, people are compelled to use more water? What's going on? Well, we're really competing with ourselves rather than with any other region of the state. Uh, the state is exquisitely diverse, and there's so many different reasons for uh, differences on month to month. So we really are competing with ourselves to try to save more water every day. Yeah, okay. But how would you rate what we're doing so far? Well, I think we're all pulling in the same direction we received about 6% less water use uh, in the residential sector than we did in 2020. And that's when June of this year was even hotter and drier than it was in 2020. So we're moving in the right direction, but we've still got a ways to go to meet the governor's goal. Do you think people are just tired of you know, government mandates coming out of COVID and, you know, the power with, uh, you know, the summer? We've had some really hot summers that have stressed out the grid. And now uh, with the drop, people being told to cut back water, do you think a lot of people are just it's starting to go in one ear and out the other? Well, there certainly is disaster fatigue out there. And one of the things that we want people to know is how critical their water supply is. So it may not make the top headlines, but it's important for us every day. And unlike many of the other big um, happenings out there, this is something that each person can actually make a difference on. When people say, and and I hear this all the time, you probably hear it too, that that oh, you know, things aren't aren't probably that bad, and and yeah, it's dry now, it'll get wet in the future. How do you convince those people? Well, one of the things that I say is that this is the driest period since the medieval ages. In fact, North Southwest North America is in the deepest drought since the year eight hundred. So when people think about that. It sounds really significant to them, and it should, because it is. Well, right now, all that a lot of the common person has to go on are seeing pictures on the Internet of Lake Mead and how low it is. And they're not seeing water run out of their faucets and their taps. And we're at the point now we've been through some droughts where that might be what it takes. I mean, maybe not that extreme, but look, I've got running water. I'm fine. We can cut back on a macro scale, but you know, I'm just going to do what I do because I'm not going to make much of an impact anyway. Well, in some ways, the success of those who work hard every day to provide Southern California water um, is our biggest challenge when we need to ask people to conserve. The number of times that people have opened their tap and nothing comes out is so much lower than the number of times that people's lights have flickered off or the internet doesn't work or the cable TV is out. So our own success builds our own challenge. But really, there are things that everybody can do, particularly using less water outdoors. Such as? Well, look at your sprinklers. First of all, is there any water that's going onto the sidewalk or running into the street? One of the things I do is walk around my neighborhood early in the morning. And you know, I don't see a lot of lights on in the homes. But I do see a lot of water running on the sidewalks and into the streets. And so part of it is 
just pay attention to what your sprinklers are doing and what they're telling you by running them uh, once a month or so when you can observe how they're how they're performing. Do you think water should be more expensive? Well, I don't really think that we should be charging for water like we maybe charge for strawberries uh, when we pay a lot when strawberries are few because water is such a basic um, element. However, I think there are ways that we can send signals to people, just like many of our other electric bills or other bills that if we're using way too much or way more than uh, perhaps uh, a normal use would indicate that maybe we should pay a little bit more for that excess use. Is there a scenario that keeps you up at night? Well, there's lots of scenarios that keep me up at night, but most of them aren't about water. Uh, water has a lot of people looking at it, a lot of people uh, running the system. And I'm really confident and we're producing water that's drinkable and safe in Southern California. We do have to be concerned about the next year and the next month. And that's why we're asking people to conserve now. You said that uh, this is really a race against ourselves, but you know the fact is that they are conserving at a greater rate up in the Bay Area. Why do you think that might be? You know, I really haven't spent a lot of time studying uh, the specific conditions. My guess is that it has more to do with the climate conditions year to year um, than it really does here. Another thing is that we've already picked a lot of the low-hanging fruit. If you look back in around 1990, compared to today and in, in 2020, we're using 40% less water per person in Southern California than we did in 1990. So a lot of the easy reductions have already been made. And so it just gets a little bit harder every time to get that next 15%. That's Brad Coffey, Water Resource Manager for the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. Thanks, Brad. This is KNX In-Depth with Brian Ping in for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Seaweed is always washing ashore at beaches. Usually people pay little to no attention to it, but it's a growing problem in the Caribbean. A record amount is blanketing coastlines on islands across that region. Brown algae is killing wildlife, releasing toxic gases hurting the tourism industry, and even causing big problems in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where federal emergency was declared because of the large amounts of seaweed impacting water production at a desalination plant. With us is uh, Daryl Joshin, director of the U.S. Virgin Islands Emergency Management Agency. Also with us is Patrick Cornbill with FEMA, who's in the Virgin Islands right now with Daryl, and Choi Min Hu, who is an optical oceanography professor at the University of South Florida. All of you, thanks for being with us. Let's uh, start with you, uh, Daryl. Uh, there's an emergency situation now uh, in that area. Why? Well, good afternoon. Uh, Governor Bryan uh, declared a state of emergency on the 21st of July due to the threat of the influx that we call sargasm or the seaweed at our intakes on our only water power authority plant on the island of St. Croix. So we've had the declaration done. We worked with the President of the United States in Region 2 
FEMA, which supports New York, New Jersey, Virgin Islands, and Puerto Rico. We were able to get that, that emergency declaration, and then Patrick came down with his team, and we've done the assessing and developing uh, what's called direct federal assistance to mitigate any threats we may have to that water plant. We are currently in a, in a drought still, along with high demand is coming up for the use of that water in the territory, which services about 50% of the population here in the island of St. Croix. Uh, Professor Hu, why is this happening? Is the seaweed becoming unmoored because it's dying because of climate change, the drought that was just mentioned, or what other factors uh, weigh in here? Well, seaweed <coughs> seaweed blooms have become uh, a norm since uh, 2011 in the Caribbean Sea. Uh, this year is particularly ba- bad, um, but it's not as bad as in 2018. Actually, in the past five years, uh, every year in this time, you know, in June, July, there's a lot of seaweed in the Caribbean Sea, especially in the Eastern Caribbean Sea, surrounding Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands. Um, it is related to climate. It is related to human activities. And in the future years, um, we're going to experience similar things again. Patrick, you're in the Virgin Islands, right, along with Daryl. Can you for our listeners kind of paint a, a picture of if you look out at the at the at the sea what do you see uh well what we see is a lot of the sargassum seaweed that is pushed up against the shore uh and and backed up off the shore and in this case as you know in some some places it's such a thick mat of it that uh it, it as it piles on top of each itself and it pushes back out in the water, in this case, over the water intake area for the, for the desalinization plant that supplies the island of St. Croix with water. Um, we also see the territory very actively trying to remove the, the sargassum from the shore and transport it away to allow more of it to wash towards shore and away from the water intake area, and more importantly, to stop it from uh, corroding on the seashore and, and decomposing which turns it into finer particles and and um, and discolored water and things that are difficult for the for the desalinization plant to filter out. Daryl, this is kind of a, a lower season the summer uh, for you know, the tourism there in the Virgin Islands. But then as we get towards the winter months, a lot more people are going to be coming. You know, the snowbirds who might make a home there uh, in the winter. So do you think that big population influx could uh, stress resources even further as you try to deal with this? Well, we're about to go to the height of hurricane season, so that's what's known in this environment. School's about to start for us in August, so there is a concern uh, really for the population, the half population. It does get that that water every single day. Uh, currently, they're putting out about 2.9 million gallons of water is being consumed um, every day, and we're basically running the reverse osmosis about 100% as best we can, but having to constantly clean the filters to prevent any further damage to the filters, as well as uh, make sure it's still safe water for individuals to have uh, delivered to their homes through Water Power Authority. Professor Hu, um, what's happening now in the Caribbean, of course, is, is on the one hand, unique to the Caribbean at the moment, but it's also a symptom, right, of what's happening all over the, all over the planet, really, in different manifestations. Uh, do you think that most people kind of get that? Uh, maybe not. Most people think this is a local phenomenon. Um, but what it occurs is actually around the world. It's in the Atlantic, it's in the Pacific. You know, the Pacific has a different type of seaweed, uh, but they also experience similar problems in the Western Pacific. Um, so back to our backyard uh, in the Caribbean, around the Virgin Islands, 
I would say the worst has been over. We are already in the declining phase with the sargassum amount. Every year, starting from late July or August, sargassum decreased. And in winter time, it's pretty clean. Um, so that's good news. The bad news is next year and in future years, every June or July, we would face a similar situation. So we better be prepared for future years. And uh, Patrick, I wanted to follow up on what uh, Daryl said about hurricane season coming up. And of course, you know, FEMA is always uh, on guard for these months and uh, those vulnerable areas. So uh, what are some things that uh, you have planned as far as response, not just for this uh, seaweed, but also uh, in general, because these, these islands have been hit very hard in recent years? Yeah, well, even in just focusing on the response to the sargassum, we're really trying to uh, make sure that as, as we assist the territory in responding to the immediate threat, we're also building their resiliency to future incidents of this nature or others. So if we can protect the water plant and safeguard uh, water production there and equip them with, uh, with greater capability to respond to disasters in the future while we're here, which is what we're trying to do, that, that'll, that'll help uh, mitigate against uh, a disaster of any type. We've also brought in, uh, just to be on the safe side, uh, brought in uh, emergency drinking water supplies to distribute. So those are already staged here on the island in, in the event that we're going to need it. Okay, that's FEMA's Patrick Cornbill, along with Daryl Joshin, director of the U.S. Virgin Islands Emergency Management Agency and University of South Florida Oceanography Professor Truman Hu. Gentlemen, thank you. If you've been feeling a little dizzy lately, it's because things are spinning faster. The Earth just had its shortest day ever on June 29th. How short? Well, 1.59 milliseconds shorter than the average day. That doesn't seem like a lot, and it really isn't, but it could lead to us needing a negative leap second. But more importantly, it could disrupt our clocks. With us is Tarek Malik, editor-in-chief of Space.com, and Patrick Hardigan, physics and astronomy professor at Rice University. So we'll start with you, uh, Tarek, as far as any kind of practical uh, <laughs> thing this could have on us and, and disrupt our clocks. It would have to happen over many short days, right? Or could this one little blip uh, cause a lot of ripple effects? Well, you know, it really depends on how how often uh, we keep having these uh, these shorter and shorter days. You know, again, as 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 you mentioned, one point five milliseconds not not that uh, uh, not that much in the bigger scheme of things, but they do add up. You know, we've seen uh, record records broken for shortest days in uh, July of twenty twenty, then again in twenty one. Uh, and uh, and and now now this one. So so the the concern is is you know really kind of academic where uh, scientists measure the length of the day with these atomic clocks and they really want to keep that in sync with what we see uh, uh, with you know from sunrise to to sunset and and whatnot. And uh, and over time that can cause these changes. And so uh, if if it does keep going, then they might have to consider that that negative leap second, which would be pretty cool. Uh, but we're not going to be flying off the the planet because it's spinning that fast anytime soon. Uh, well, Patrick, I was going to ask you, I mean, uh, is this something that, that happens often? Does the Earth kind of speed up and then maybe slow down and then speed up again? Yeah, sure. This is a common phenomenon. Um, there's basically two ways in which you can kind of change the way that the Earth is uh, spinning and what its rotation is. One is to have some sort of a force which will grab one end more than the other and essentially exert a torque on the Earth, and good examples of that are the Moon and the Sun that are are well known that that do that. But those tend to be very long term 
things that happen that have effects over millions of years. But there's also a lot of short-term um, variations, which, like Tarek says, are, are very small. They're on the order of uh, milliseconds or so. But what, what those are caused by is just having uh, the mass distribution within the Earth change a little bit. So, for example, if you were melting glaciers high up, then maybe you're distributing some of that mass closer in towards the center, or if you have um, some kind of convection within the Earth's interior. And what's happening is basically the same thing that happens when you have a skater and they're pulling their arms in, they'll speed up. If they move their arms out, they speed down or, or slow down. And so this is the sort of thing that happens annually, and there are also longer-term variations, so it's not at all uncommon. You mentioned uh, a convection within the Earth, but as far as atmospheric phenomena, we're seeing more. You know, this is probably uh, you know, ridiculous in the broad scheme because it's just the atmosphere layer over the Earth, but... Yeah, we are having more extreme weather. Fiercer storms are concentrated in parts of the planet. You think that could spin us off maybe by a millisecond or a nanosecond? I don't think that that's a major factor, but you do have to include kind of all possibilities when you're looking at things that are that um, small. I would think that a, a larger factor would actually just be redistributing the mass kind of from, um, say, the mountaintops down to, to lower levels. Um, but it, it's kind of unclear exactly what is what are the drivers because there are a lot of small effects, kind of at this level. Uh, we do have an idea. I think we do know what's going on in terms of the physics, uh, but actually defining and predicting what will happen is a little bit more difficult. You know, why do I I feel guilty? I cleaned my closet out last week, and I'm thinking, well, maybe now the Earth is speeding up. Is that, is well, that... <laughs> it depends on how much stuff you had in the closet. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, what was in there? I, I don't know, but maybe enough to make the Earth speed up. Tarek, let me ask you something. Um, is this the kind of thing that, like, science buffs get really excited about? You know, I, I think that scientists are always excited when they see something new uh, or, or changes over time that they're watching. Uh, specifically, you know, um, uh, I think for the, for the public, what this really does show is we are part of a, of a planet, of a, a dynamic system, you know, that is orbiting the sun with the moon uh, having its own exertions on our, on our planet. And, and this is just another example to show that what we take for granted, you know, uh, one day at a time, isn't as exact as we would, you know, think it would be on a regular basis, and that we are part of an ever-changing system on our planet and in the solar system. Are people you know, trying to blame this on, uh, you know, rough days, like when Mercury's in retrograde, you know, their minds don't work as well, maybe it's it's spinning faster, now you're hearing people complain, oh, oh, yeah, that makes sense, now it's June 29th, well, we lost a millisecond, so that's well, why I was they, feeling weird. I think the next time I'm late for work, I may say, well, the Earth speeded up a little bit, so right. uh, the day got a bit shorter. I think I'm going to keep that one in my hip pocket. It, to either one of you guys, um, has there ever been a time in, in uh, human history, anyway, uh, when the Earth has materially either sped up or slowed down in an, any appreciable manner? I don't think we really have really good records at the precision that we would need, but almost certainly when we had glaciers, um, that's a major redistribution of the, of the mass on the, on the planet. So I'm sure that that made a difference on a, on a small level. Um, but again, just to kind of... Um, emphasize what Tarek is saying here is if you go back way into the past, like, for example, uh, 900 million years ago, there's actually evidence that the Earth's um, rotation period was only 18 hours. 
And that has to do with uh, its interaction with the moon and the moon's orbit, because we think uh, that the moon was actually formed from an impact of a large impact around the Earth. We know that from uh, essentially the the Apollo uh, results from looking at trace elements in the rocks. And if that were the case, then the moon would have been formed really close to the Earth. It would be about 30 times larger than it appears into the sky right now. But then slowly over time, um, because of these tidal effects, the uh, the moon slowly will move further out, and the other thing that's happening is that the Earth is slow is slowing down its rotation. So over hundreds of millions of years, uh, these these are very long term effects which are inevitable. Um, but we're, what we're kind of seeing here in this new data is much more the short term effects, and so that happens just when you're redistributing the mass in some way. That's Patrick Hardigan, physics and astronomy professor at Rice, joined by Tarek Malik, editor-in-chief at Space.com. Gentlemen, thank you. You know, I kind of like the idea that we once, as a planet, had an 18-hour day, because yeah. we would have had a shorter work day. It would have mm-hmm. been, been great. All things would have been more condensed. Could have impacted productivity, but yeah, people probably didn't notice back then. They affected their caveman etchings. They, yeah, didn't, they couldn't do as many. <laughs> Less time to sleep. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> that is KNX In-Depth for today.